0: Um, I had a professor in seminary who used to tell us that, that um, reading your Bible is a lesson in ophthalmology. What he meant by that was that what we tend to do when we read our Bibles, all of us, there's not one person who's excluded from this, is that we tend to uh, look at the Bible through the lenses, our own lenses, right? So I look at it from being, you might say, an American Christian, a a white male American Christian, a middle class, why all those kind of things factor into the way that I read my Bible. So this this is one of the reasons why it's important that we read our Bibles in community. I need to know what Michelle sees. I need to know what my brothers and sisters see. I need to know what different people, not because they all have different meanings, but because they help me to see with eyes that I don't have. They help me look through a lens that I don't have. Now, let's suppose that we could gather a very diverse group of people We could gather young and old, and male and female, and black and white, and Asian and Hispanic, and 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 you know people from different countries, all that kind of stuff. And we could put them in a room together. These are all Bible-loving people, and say, let's read our Bibles. Let let's try to understand this with new eyes. That'd be good. In fact, let me just suggest that might be a great thing for our current cultural climate, right? That we come into this and go, man, I want to listen to how other people are viewing these things. I want to see things through their eyes. But but even if we did that, we would be missing one major uh, a person or persons in, in the room. And that is that we are all, everybody in that room would be limited to the 21st century. Everybody in that room would be a product of modernism. Everybody in that room would would be, would need, no technology and all these things, and there would be a worldview in some ways that we all share because we all share the same era in world history. So this is one of the reasons that what we have to do is go and listen to other people who've come before us and what do they think and how do they read their Bible, so that we can get more of a community, right? Church history is important, all that kind of stuff. This is really, really important for us to consider, Especially today, because there are, there are passages in Scripture that Ceci just read, and maybe as you read them, maybe there's something about the language that Peter used that made you bristle. There's things that he says that, that make you offended. You're, you end up saying things like, did God really say that? Does God mean that? Like what? Does God, does God say things different than you? Does God think different than you? Does God have different cultural sensibilities than you? Yes. Right? So so we come with all of these prejudices. But look, beware, beware of never being offended by your Bible. I want to say something. God never blushes. God never thinks to himself, you know what? I wish I'd have stated that in a different way. I wish, I mean, look, we need to do that as Christians. We need to measure our words. We need to be very careful, especially in moments like this, that we're not just rattling off. God never rattles off. Every word choice is divinely inspired and he gives it to us. And he says, I'm not embarrassed by it. I don't blush about it. Peter's going to say some things to our modern sensibilities that offend us and God never apologizes. but beware. Beware that you read in such a way that the Bible never offends you. If that happens, you're probably not reading it right, right? You have a designer of Christianity, a designer Bible, and you're the designer, right? Many ways it will push back against us, okay? Now, now so that's going to happen today. Be ready for it, right? I want you to see this, but I want to I place this in context. Okay, let's recall Peter, everything he's saying is coming out of the gospel, right? We have been born again to a resurrection, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 1, he immediately goes into saying essentially this. Here's a main theme. Be holy as God is holy. Live holy lives. Live separate. Show that you're distinct from the culture. Be different. Be Christ-like. And then he's going to begin to flesh out what that looks like, right? He's going to get specific. Okay, so when it comes to governmental authorities, when they're operating properly, right? When government is doing what it's supposed to be doing and protecting its citizen. He says, you obey them. You be subject to them. When it comes to employer and employee relationships, sometimes there are employers who are abusive. Sometimes they are oppressive. He's not saying you can't get out, but sometimes we as Christians, as we talked about last week, are called to endure suffering. And now he takes it into a context and says, I want to take this idea of holiness, I want to take the idea of separateness, of being a distinctly Christian counterculture and move it all the way home and apply that within a Christian marriage. Now, maybe that seems like it's not very relevant during a season like this. This is incredibly relevant. It is really important that we hear this. See, um, I don't know what the stay-at-home order has done for you, right? I mean, we've we've all been kind of cooped up for the last, I don't know, 60, 90 days, and here we are, and maybe some of you would say who are married, that's been a really precious. It's been so wonderful to be with my husband, but maybe there's a lot of you that would say, this has put a stress on our marriage like we've never known before. This has caused fighting. This has caused a kind of, um, wartime mentality to come into our home that we have never experienced. And I'm not sure our marriage is going to make it. I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Listen to me. God is concerned about the injustice and the lack of peace in our world. But hear me, He is just as concerned, if not more concerned, about the lack of peace in your home. Right? In fact, listen, listen, the, 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 the former, like the, the justice at home is what brings about the justice in the culture. The, the peacemaking at home is what brings about the peacemaking in culture. Don't, don't hypocritically advocate for peacemaking in the culture when you're not willing to do the hard work of making peace at home. I've quoted Tish Harrison Warren before. She wrote this wonderful book, The The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Listen to what she says. She says, I'm a pacifist who yells at my husband. That's a great sentence. I can get caught up in the big ideas of justice and truth and neglect the small opportunities around me to extend kindness, forgiveness, and peace. I often neglect the obvious, proclaiming radical love to the world even as I neglect to care for those closest to me. But I am increasingly aware but I cannot seek God's peace and mission in the world without beginning right where I am in my home, in my neighborhood, in my church, with the real people around me. That is a good word. See, all this that we want starts at home. Okay, so Peter now is going to say, so let's talk. Let me talk to husbands. Let me talk to wives. Let me show you that he's going he's gonna to call us to something very counterculture. But I want you to look at something. He, he talks, he takes six verses talking to wives, one verse talking to husbands. That not That's not because wives need more instruction than husbands. This is, you have to understand, this is inspired by God. God's giving them exactly what they need. And I'm going to say to husbands, if you had one li- verse to live your life by, I dare you to live out verse seven. But what he says to both of them, verse 1, look at verse 1, he says likewise to, to wives. Verse 7, he says to husbands, likewise, or some of your, your translations say in a similar way or something like that. Now what's, he, what's the, the likewise is telling us that he's referring back to something. Well, last week we talked about oppression. He's saying, likewise, wives, you should, you should endure oppression. I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think he's saying that to husbands. I think what he's saying is he's referring back to this Christian conduct that he's shown us what it looks like for us to behave Christianly in all kinds of, of, of arenas. And now here in the home, okay, what does it look like to be a pilgrim? What does a pilgrim wife look like? What does a pilgrim husband look like? so that it forces a hostile culture around us to take notice, to see, to look in and see this Christianity thing is real. So, so, so here we are, and we bring it all the way home. Now, so let's look. We're going to look at a countercultural wife and then a countercultural husband, okay? So let's start off by looking at the countercultural wife. That's where Peter starts. Now, again, let me start, let me, let me, let me interrupt and go back to where we started. If you put on the lens of modern gender debate, you will miss it. If you look at this through 21st century eyes, if you even look at the language through a 21st century lens, you will be offended, you won't understand it, you will be, it, it will be abrasive to you, and the chances are you won't adopt it. This is why we have to listen This is why we have to look at what Peter is saying. See, I don't think this is just offensive to us or hard for us. I think it was hard for them for different reasons. And we'll talk about that, okay? Now, Um, There's a lot of people they talk about and say, man, women are repressed in the Bible. Women are pushed down. Uh, Wives are, you know, are being subject to abuse. Things like that because of the language of the Bible. Listen to me. It's because, again, we're reading this through 21st century eyes. We have to understand that what Peter is doing here, what the Bible does, what Paul does is elevate the status of wives and women. Like nobody, no dignitary ever wrote a letter addressing wives. Like I'm writing to you. They'd write to husbands about their wives, but they wouldn't write to wives. They wouldn't mention them. I imagine the people in the church in Peter's day, as as that letter began to be read, they would hear wives, I want to talk to you now, and they would have perked up and thought, "You're, you're kidding me. He's talking to us. No one did this. He gives them dignity just by virtue of, of talking to them. And notice, by the way, he, he does this. He always talks to not, not the one who is understood to be the cultural, uh, in, the, in the place of cultural superiority. He doesn't talk to the authorities. He talks to citizens. He doesn't talk to the employers. He talks to the employees, the oppressor, but the oppressed. And here he starts and says, I want to talk to wives. So what does he say to wives? First thing he says, look at verses 1 and 2. He says, wives, a countercultural wife will submit to her husband. Okay, so look at, look at verse 1 with this. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay, now, now let me say a couple of things here. First of all, whenever wives are addressed in the New Testament, Peter, Paul, there is always a command to submit, be subject to, one of those kinds of words. Why? Because probably this is not uh, something that was readily accepted. This is countercultural. But I think the other reason is because. Because submission, before it's an external behavior, God says this is a posture of the heart, right? It is not mere externally doing what your husband says or things like this. This is saying there should be a posture. There should be, God never, you understand, ever, in all of scripture, never wants us to live our Christian lives where our hands are divorced from our hearts. He wants those two things to go together. So he's saying to wives, this is, I want the, Is to be a place of the heart, so you cannot. A man could never force his wife to submit in that way. So the command comes from God. I'm asking you. I'm commanding you, wives, that you would submit to your husbands. Okay, but what is submission? Okay, is this just blind obedience? I have to do everything my husband says. No. No, any more than our submission being subject to all human authorities that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is blind obedience. It's never that. It's always qualified. Do you understand that? We said a, a couple of weeks ago, we gave you this definition of when civil disobedience is okay. Well, let me rephrase that for the sake of wives, right? A wife does not have to submit to a demand the Bible forbids or to a prohibition that the Bible commands, ever, You don't have to do that. That's that's never a requirement. Your allegiance is to Christ, wife. Your your first husband is Christ. That's where your allegiance lies. But but look at what Paul is doing here. Look at verse one again. Paul is writing in in chapter three, verse one, to to women, he says, wives, uh, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. He's writing to women whose wives do not, this is his primary audience, I'm not saying there's not other wives here, but there are wives who don't have Christian husbands. He's saying be subject, and by the way, he doesn't say women be subject to men, he says wives be subject to your own husbands. That's where it lies, okay? So these these are, some of the audience that Peter is writing to are Christian women with unbelieving husbands. And this is a huge cultural problem. Not for us, for them. Right, Because in, in Peter's day, in the Roman Empire, it was expected, it was a pressure from the culture that a wife would adopt the gods, the religion of her husband. Now, she's fine if she wants to take her religion and then add his religion, that's okay, as long as she worshiped her husband's God. The gospel comes along and says there is one God, there is no other God, you must not, you cannot, you shall not worship another God. And says there is an exclusivity. So right off the bat, here's a woman who is out of step with her culture. There is no such thing as dual allegiance in the gospel. So here's a wife who already has to be a rebel, who already has to be countercultural. And Peter comes along and says, so wives, listen. Listen. In that instance... And Paul's going to broaden it. It's not just for those with unbelieving husbands. He's saying, be submissive where possible because you're already in rebellion against cultural expectations. The culture already doesn't like what you're doing. See what I mean? Christian marriage is always countercultural, it's always out of step with the culture. For for Peter, it was denying the cultural norm of adopting the husband's faith, rebelling against that. And let me say this, maybe for us in the 21st century, it's being willing to talk about submission in a glad-hearted way, in a way that doesn't blush in the midst of our culture. You're going to see this in a moment here. Like like maybe that's the way we're being countercultural because nobody's going to talk like this except God. But, but why are we supposed to be submissive? Why should women be submissive to their husbands? Well, he tells us. He, he actually gives them a reason. He says, um, he says, so that they may be one, verse one, without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. So he's saying, if there's a mission behind this, there's a purpose behind this, that you could actually win him, but you win him without words. Now hear me, this is not, you know, we've said this before, I believe this, it's not, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. No, words are necessary for people to be saved, but he's saying in the context of the home, wives don't nag, you cannot nag your husband into the kingdom. You can't do the passive aggressive thing of leaving books on his nightstand, sending him emails he ought to read in the hopes that this will change his life, change his marriage, change his relationship with the Lord. You just live this out and then you pray And you pray and ask God to bring people into his life. Look, moms and dads, you know this. It's possible for us to teach our children all their life something that they don't seem to get. And then some Yehu comes along, teaches the very same thing you've been teaching them. They finally wake up and say, we get it. Oh, yeah. Mom and dad, you've got to hear this. You're thinking, what are you talking about? I've been talking to you about this for your whole life. That's because very often the people closest to us were hardened to. We don't hear. So he's saying, wives, Live differently, right? Live this way. Be ready to speak, yes. But, but don't talk when he's closed himself off from listening. Model, right? This is um, St. Augustine. Uh, his, his wife, or his, his mother, his mother's name was Monica, after Santa Monica is named after her. And... Um, She won his pagan father to Christ. And listen to what he writes in Confessions. He says, she served her husband and did all she could to win him for you, Christ, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Maybe that'll happen. Ed Clowney comments on this and he says, Christian wives can have an important part in church's witness. That witness may not be easy. Their husbands have resisted the claim of the gospel. They may ridicule the message and insult their wives. So strong may be their hostility that it is no longer possible for their wives to speak of the Lord to them. Even then, the Christian wife must not despair. Don't despair, ladies. She still possesses a mighty weapon for winning her husband to the faith. It is the testimony of her life. Her husband has refused to heed the word. Very well, let him be one without words. That's beautiful. That's the idea. Okay. So the first thing a countercultural wife does is submit to her husband. The second thing is she cultivates imperishable beauty. Look at verses three and four. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of and jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, what's happening here, right? Paul says something very similar in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He tells, he tells Timothy, Timothy likewise also, uh, he says, to women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What's, what, what's Paul and Peter's problem, right? Do they, do they think a woman shouldn't make, put on makeup or, 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 or wear her hair nice or wear nice clothes or even try to be beautiful for her husband? No, that's not the issue. The issue is not just you know, simply her being beautiful. The issue is, is th- that very often in that culture, hair uh, this is true today, many times, hair and, and, and makeup and clothing are used to signify a sort of a socioeconomic class. In Peter's day, the way you wore your hair said much about who you were. Like, like wealthy women wore their hair a certain way. Peasant women, another way. Prostitutes, another way. So so here he's saying, man, don't be so concerned. What's the principle? The principle is modesty. The principle is what are you spending your time on? It's not that we shouldn't be beautiful. It's not there against hair or jewelry or good clothing or things like that. It's saying where do we spend our time? See, see, Proverbs 31, many of you know this. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, that's the woman who is to be praised. That's the woman that we should be looking at and saying, let's hold her up. It's not just beauty, physical beauty. There's something deeper than that. See, ladies, let me just ask you this way. Guys, I could ask you the same question. Which gets more of your attention? Where do you spend more of your time? One of those things will pass away. The other is imperishable. Paul says later to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, "Um, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So is Paul saying we shouldn't be physically fit? Don't worry about your bodies? No. He's saying where's the emphasis? Where do you spend most of your time training? On a beautiful body or a beautiful spirit? See, a beautiful body, young people, will last you for a few decades. A beautiful spirit will last you for a lifetime and all into eternity. Where are you spending your time? She cultivates an imperishable beauty. Are you cultivating? Are you spending time building your spirit, drawing closer to God, knowing His Word? The last thing he says to women is a woman, a, a countercultural woman respects her husband. I'm going to be quick here, but look at verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who have hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. See what I told you? You put on gender debate. You put on 21st century glasses. You're like, is Peter trying to be offensive? No, he's not. He's saying, right, and for the record, Michelle's never called me Lord. That's never happened, right? That's not demanded, shouldn't be demanded by anybody. But, but here's, the, here's the idea. He's saying, here's the proven path of godly women. They respect their husbands. And in fact, he says, they adorned themselves through submission, Ladies, the, the, the quickest way to wound, to damage your husband's soul is by not respecting him. You don't have to call him Lord, but are you building him up with your words? Is he just hearing how disappointed and disgusted? Are you being, is he being demeaned by you? The quickest way to wound a man is there. And the quickest way to woo him is through your encouragement. See, see and by the way, verse six is just stunning, isn't it? It says, um, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, what might a woman be fearing who submits to her husband and respects him and and cultivates imperishable beauty? Well, I, I don't think what Peter is saying is fearing physical abuse. I think he's saying fearing the culture fearing what others think about you. See, you don't fear that. You look and say, I want, I want one person's approval, and that's God. I want to do what God asked me to do. And so I don't fear the approval of culture. I fear the approval of God. That's what I want. You hope in God. It's a counter-cultural way of being a wife. But now, let's look at husbands he talks to husband and says, okay, you need to be countercultural as well. So how does a husband do that? Look at verse 7. The first thing he's going to say is by understanding his wife. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, maybe we don't need to hear that as much today, but there would have been you know, in the Roman Empire, you, you might have your wife would be for uh, giving you children. A mistress would be for, for uh, you know, sexual pleasure. You might have a prostitute. A man might have two, three, four women. He's saying, no, you live with your wife, right? You're exclusive to her, but you live with her in an understanding way. That word, that the phrase literally could be translated, you live with her according to knowledge. That is that guys, you'll hear guys sometimes say, I don't understand women. You're not supposed to understand women. You're supposed to understand your wife. You're supposed to have one thing you study when it comes to your marriage, and that's your wife. To know her, to know her fears, to know her anxieties, to know her preferences, to know her needs. Why? So that you can meet those needs, so that you can love her better, so that you can be acquainted with her, so you can allay her fears. See, listen, any concern that what Peter is doing is setting up women and wives for abuse and neglect, that may happen, but that didn't come from a guy reading and understanding and applying Scripture. That is unfounded. I told you before, guys, if we live by one verse when it comes to our, our marriages, I dare you to live out verse 7. See, if a husband behaved like what Peter's going to tell them to behave like, a marriage would flourish. He would put his wife's needs above his own. So what does that look like? Well, there's a lot of things we could say. I think it looks like knowing your wife's needs and meeting them before she asks. I think it's, like it's, it's knowing where she excels and encouraging her to excel in those things. It, it's, it's not micromanaging your home, but entrusting her. It's, it's knowing when to talk, guys, and when to shut up and not having to speak your mind about everything. That's what a countercultural husband does. He understands his wife. Do you understand her? Do you know her fears, her insecurities, her hopes, her dreams, her, you know, the things that make her laugh, the things that make her sad? I mean, do, have you studied her in such a way that you know how to anticipate her needs before she asks? That's the idea. But then he says he also honors his wife. Did you see that in, in verse seven? He says, showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The weaker vessel, see there again, you want to be offended by that? This does not mean, what Peter's not referring to is a woman's intellectual capacity, her emotional capacity, psychologically. What he's saying is simply the common understanding that even today we hold that, that in general, husbands are physically stronger than wives. I'm not saying it's always true. And so how will you use that power? How will you use that strength? Will you use it to abuse? Will you use it to neglect? No. He says you use it to honor, to esteem, to uphold. Say, I want to I show forth your excellences, if you will. See, so this means abuse and threats and mistreatments in any form are never allowed. A woman is never called ever to endure abuse. Look, last week, I I could show you again, he he calls some people in employer-employee relationships, we might say, there might be times when you endure abuse. Man, I did that as an employee. I had a boss that was horrific. But he never says, wives, you do that with your husbands, ever. So, So how do we do this? How do we honor our wives? I think there's all kinds of ways we honor. We can honor her spiritually. Peter names one by saying they're co-heirs of God's grace in this life, right? That's radical. That's revolutionary that he would even say that a woman is a co-heir with a man in the Roman Empire. She is your equal in the eyes of God. You can honor her emotionally, understanding she's wired differently than you, and that's a good thing. You celebrate that. You're glad that you're not married to yourself. you probably kill yourself. You honor her physically by guys you never touch her to harm her every touch is to be gracious to her and kind to her and provide for her and care for her physical needs. You honor her intellectually by understanding there are places where your wife is your intellectual superior, right? She teaches you things and you can sit at her feet as a student to learn from her. You honor her relationally by inviting her into the conversation where you say, man, I need to know how to make a decision. Can you muster all of your leadership and all of your your, your or intelligence and all of your... Per- and help me make this decision. We can honor her financially by trusting her to steward resources well. And may- maybe, guys, there's some of you that say, my wife is better at money management than I am. Give her the money. I think it's just a man has to do that. And by the way, you can honor her publicly. Publicly. You know, you know Proverbs 31 lists this like woman, this wife par excellence. I mean, just goes to this litany and at the very end says, man, her husband praises her in the gate. You know what this means? It means he stands up in front of others. He doesn't go to, uh, you know, poker night and, and rag on his wife. He, he goes and he tells the other guys what an excellent wife he has found. He praises her. He honors her. He lifts her up. Do you see what I mean? If a husband would do this, then everything else falls into place. But let me just show you one last thing. He says, he ends this with a warning to husbands. Look at the end of verse seven. So that your prayers may not be hindered. This is frightening. I just, I, I literally, right before I walked up here, I looked and I found, I, I found a quote here. I want to read this to you. Wayne Grudem says this, so God is concerned that Christian, he's so concerned that Christians live in an understanding way and loving way with their wives that he interrupts, God interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. Their prayers are hindered. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer and no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way bestowing honor on her. To take time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is spiritual activity pleasing in his sight. That's good. Men, some of you, your prayers are being hindered because you do not honor your wife, because you do neglect her, because you do use your physical strength against her, because you don't try to understand her. And you will never be able to have an effective Christian life apart from that. You've been united as one. God's brought you together. And He expects you, husband, He expects me to lead. Because she is a co-heir of grace in this life. Listen, it is the foolish man, it is the foolish man who believes that he is the spiritually mature one that can't learn from his wife and won't look to his wife. Let me tell you something. I am called, according to Ephesians 5, to wash Michelle in the word of God, to make sure that she knows it, to encourage her in her study, to help her get into Bible studies, bring her to church. All those kinds of things are ways of washing my wife in the word. But I got to tell you, I have learned more from Michelle, modeling for me, the Christian life than any other person I've ever met. She has modeled a woman who fears the Lord. She has modeled grace. She has modeled the fruits of the Spirit without ever saying a word. Oh, she talks to me. Don't, don't get me wrong. She'll tell me what she thinks. But very often she doesn't even have to open her mouth because she models it with her conduct. And we're called men to honor our wives to love them, to understand them. May God give us the grace, Foothill, to be a church filled with countercultural marriages, countercultural wives, countercultural husbands that seek peace in our home as we seek peace in our world. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do love you and we thank you. And uh, Lord, I just pray that the reality of this verse would would, uh, impact our hearts. God, how many of us men are having prayers that are hindered how many wives are taking their cues from from social media and the culture guys as well lord rather we would be people to say man what we want to do is live according to the standard the bible would lay out for us and so help us god give us the grace to understand that give us the grace to unpack that within our marriages that we may have marriages that bring glory, that show forth the excellencies of Christ, that demonstrate holiness and a difference in the midst of a world that has said, we have no need, no use for God in Christ. Help us, Lord, to show forth that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, uh, maybe you're listening in today and you'd say, man, Chris, I, I, um, I hear you and, uh, and you need prayer for your marriage. Text that number, 626-469-7070. Man, we'd love to be praying with you and for you. Uh, you need somebody to reach out to you, please let us know. But maybe you're listening and you're, and you're, you're thinking, you know what, um, I hear this, but, but, but what I want you to understand is that apart from the saving work of Christ in your life, this is all futile, right? God has to do a heart change. We said this last week, right? But these graces that are talked to, I mean, a wife submitting and respecting and all these things, and a husband loving and understanding, that is not just a duty we perform. It's a, it's a miracle to be experienced. It's a grace to be received. Have you received the grace of God in your life? Have you been changed by the gospel? Have you put your hope, your trust, and faith in Jesus Christ? If not, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. That you would turn and say, Jesus, save me. Save me from my sin for my wickedness from my trying to live and earn your favor on my own that you do that today and turn him. Mean, if you did that man would you let us know just, say, just text the number and say I want to be a Christian or salvation or however you want to phrase that we'll know what you mean and we'd love again we'd love to be praying with you and for you and send you a Bible send you whatever you need that's why we exist to see people like you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ okay well here's what I want to do go ahead and grab your uh, your communion elements and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together where we remember what He's done and His death in our place on our behalf. And this is one of those things where, boy, here we hold in our, our hands the elements of Christ sacrificing Himself for us, laying down His life, and, and it's amazing how often Paul's going to return to this metaphor, the cross of Christ, is he's going to apply it to husbands and to wives, right? That what we're both doing is laying down our rights for one another, wives submitting, husbands. I mean, Paul specifically says, just like Christ, we lay down our lives for our wives. We give up our preferences. We serve her and care for her. And so let's pray that God would do that in each of our lives as we remember what he's done for us. And so let's take the, the bread, and, and Jesus, Paul said on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he'd broken it, he blessed it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And he said in the same manner after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim uh, the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. So Father, we love you. We bless you. We proclaim your death. Proclaim that you are a God who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled yourself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And God, we want to imitate that in our lives as husbands, as wives, as, as Christian people in our world. So help us, we pray. We love you. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.